Hello, friends. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young here. Just want to remind you guys that if you would like to support this show, you can do so by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I want to underline this because we are about to pass a milestone on the Patreon, which is where TakePoliticsSeriously.com takes you, and that is our most patrons ever. The most we have ever had on that Patreon is 550. We are at around the 540 range right now, but I suspect that there's a lot of new people coming into this from the debate coverage, from Twitch, from social media. People are tuning back into politics. If you would like to support this show, this is independent political media, not connected to a platform. This kind of stuff does not play on platforms. I'm just letting you know. I've, I've poked around. Not interested. At the $3 level, you get two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Friday, and that will make sure that you are never far away from my political hot takery. And as always, you get that in a custom RSS feed that you can put into the podcatcher of your choice. Whatever you're doing right now, if you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com right now and you go and sign up at the $3 level, you get a custom RSS feed, you literally just copy link, go right back into the podcatcher that you are listening to this on right now, paste it in there, and boom, you're done. Never a username, never a password, always getting them takes. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Trust me, it means the world. Everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program, PX3 for short. We have a ton to talk about. Final cleanup on the debates over the last week. I know we covered the shit out of them. We did the recap episodes uh, for the $3 Club. You got to hear me on Friday about it. You got to hear me on Monday about it. But I've got some final thoughts and I want to look forward to the next debates. We will do that in a fashion that you will hear nowhere else on <laughs> political media. I feel very, very confident to say the way that we will talk about both the past and future of the Democratic debates will be unique to PX3. We're also going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the uh, salute to America Trump celebration on the 4th of July tomorrow, the Iran deal and, of course, the pole dance, but your emails. Before we get into anything else, though, let me just say one thing off the top. I know I did the little uh, a Patreon thing at the beginning of the episode, but let me just thank you guys. Last month, the month of June, was the most listened to we have ever been on this program. Uh, that is bigger than anything we did in 2016, that is bigger than election night in 2018 during the off-year elections. 
thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are, if this is an indication of where we are going with this program, then I am thrilled to be on a journey with you. And folks, we are going to be on a journey. I am telling you right now that based, I mean, look, if on the first debate we did the best month ever, then I have but one feeling, and I don't think that I'm wrong, that we're going to have a lot of best months ever coming up between now and Election Day in 2020. So if you have shared this podcast with a friend, thank you. If you've been thinking about uh, sharing this podcast with a friend, then please go ahead. I'm, I'm going to try to continue to make more and more shareable content to make sure that you can get the word out on these heard nowhere else kind of takes, including this one. With the Reaper, the stench of death has already begun to permeate over the campaigns that were not able to generate momentum from the debates last week. And I have told you on this very podcast that there would be a glut of candidates that would go into the first caucus in Iowa. But now, after communing with my campaign undertaker and seeing the future for what lies ahead of all these campaigns, I am here to tell you that is no longer the case. And I will make the mathematical argument for you right now as to why. Hanging over the rest of this segment, I will ask you this simple question. If your campaign can only live by qualifying for debates, is it worth killing your campaign to qualify? So the entire time that I've gone through this election, what I've thought is, all right, there's a gigantic glut of candidates. The interest level has never been higher. The fundraising capacity has never been more potent on the Democratic side. So no matter what, there will be enough interest and money to sustain as many campaigns as there are candidates that want to run. But one thing that I had kind of taken for granted is no longer really the case right now, or rather it has compounded what was the way that a long shot would run for president. So the way that a long shot would normally run for president is move to either New Hampshire or Iowa, either literally or figuratively. But you were going to go and learn every dog's name, kiss every baby, and go to t-ball and softball games. You're going to go to girls' soccer games uh, or maybe lacrosse in New Hampshire for as long as you need to until you are literally have memorized every citizen's name and you have turned out the vote on a disproportionate level. What you would hope is that then an early success, as more and more people start paying attention to the political cycle, will vault you up into the polls, 
the, uh, the polling that you need, and you can go forward from there. Now, there's been early debates throughout the last several cycles, but not like this. We have seen so much interest in the debates continue to generate and generate, largely because they're television media events, that now we have a logjam. And so the DNC, Tom Perez and the Democratic National Committee, said we are going to put in floors. We're not going to pick winners and losers, which is a rarity for Democrats. <laughs> We're not going to pick winners and losers. We are going to give you hard thresholds that you either have to hit or you can't make the stage. So the first two debates had the exact same qualifiers. 65,000 donors total with a minimum of 200 donors in at least 20 states. That's for the one that just happened and then the debates in late July in Detroit. The third debate is not until September. The next debate after that is in October, but it's very important to keep an eye on the momentum of the campaigns that are going to try to get there because we might see a massive thinning of this herd. And that thinning would come four months before we really start seeing the campaign heating up in Iowa for the first caucus. Often looked at as, well, I mean, it's very important. Iowa is very important, but it's more important for the fringe candidates. It's You can lose Iowa if you're a frontrunner. You can lose New Hampshire if you're a frontrunner, although losing both is usually a bad sign. But the real separating the wheat from the chaff happens in South Carolina. But let's focus on how early all of this is. Instead of focusing on a hyper-local and theoretically threadbare campaign financially, you should really only open one campaign office in Iowa, don't worry about your polling, show up for the debates, do what you can, but don't worry all that much as long as you are making a headway in the Iowa polls and you've got a decent shot come caucus time, then your long-shot campaign has a chance. But what if qualifying for these debates is taking away from your ability to play local in Iowa or New Hampshire. Because I believe that that is increasingly the case. You are basically taking out payday loans against your ability to build a sustainable campaign in the early states that you desperately need so you can stay on stage, so you are not thought of as irrelevant, so you can get money to play in those early states. Do you see how that's a weird robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing? The individual donor limit is what I'm going to focus on in this specific segment. Uh, the, the polling is, is weird. Uh, look, it doesn't take a lot for you to jump up from 1% to 2%, uh, so I'm not going to focus on that as much because... I think that there's a more interesting story to tell right now about trying to acquire individual donors. How do you do that? Well, one way is by going on social media, taking all of your following that you have connected directly to and asking them for money. So let's go ahead and take a real quick Twitter check of followers for some of the candidates that are in single digits that face an uphill battle trying to get on the third debate stage. Kirsten Gillibrand has 1.4 million followers. All right, that's pretty good. So she needs 130,000 of them to give her something. 
That's not wild, right? You know, depending on exactly how inflated that number is, you might have a representative sample in there that would want to peel off a few dollars to you. Eric Swalwell has about a half a million. Mm, that's a little harder. That's a little harder. I mean, you can only really expect like 10% of the people that are interested in you enough to follow you on social media to kick you in something. So that would not put you where you need to be. Now, obviously, this is not you know, dealing with their Facebook pages. This is not dealing with whatever mailing list they have. This is not dealing with other ways that they can micro-target. I know that Twitter isn't everything, but I do think that it's interesting to look at it when you are trying to drum up any interest you possibly can. Andrew Yang has about a half a million too, but he's different, and I'll get to that in a second. Let's get to some people that are really in trouble. Governor John Hickenlooper has 153,000 people. That means that let's assume every single one of those Twitter followers wants to donate to his campaign. Unlikely, he barely clears just the first escalation of that individual donor floor on Twitter. That's a thin margin. John Delaney's even a worse situation. He only has 26,000 Twitter followers. For the record, I have more Twitter followers than John Delaney. So according to 538, and this was about a month ago, here are the candidates that are going to struggle to make that third debate stage and how many individual donors they have up to this point. Castro had 65,000. Gabbard had 65,000. Uh, so did Inslee, and so did Marianne Williamson. But Gillibrand, Hickenlooper, Ryan, Bullock, Delaney, Swalwell, de Blasio, all have less. That means that they have to double what they have already done to make that debate stage. This is going to be an uphill battle. Andrew Yang... Yang Yang is not on that list. And here's why. He's built a rabid Reddit following. He's built a rabid Facebook following. He has been running a competition between the two for the last month leading up to the Q2 fundraising deadline to see who could raise the most. The news broke this week that he has already passed the 130,000 donor mark here in July. That's huge. That's an earned audience of dedicated followers that he is taking deliberate steps to get to where he needs to be. But let's say you don't have that. There's no Jilla gang, right? <laughs> There's no uh, 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 Delaney's denizens or whatever. How do you get to that donor limit? Well, we're already seeing how you can do it, and it's what many people call customer acquisition. I know we definitely have some salespeople out here that are listening to me right now. They know exactly what this is. Customer acquisition. How much money do you have to spend in advertising to make somebody buy your product? In this case, the product is donating as little as $2.00 to become an individual donor. According to a PBS NewsHour report, that is a high price 
for some candidates. And to be totally honest, this is the paragraph that made me do this entire segment. Quote, some strategists concede campaigns are spending upward of $40 on average for every email address of a prospective small dollar donor, an unsustainable ratio that has forced cutbacks in hiring, candidate travel, and organizing support on the ground in key states. The way you used to do it was by hiding out in Iowa and New Hampshire and making your inroads. Now you can't do that unless you are making these debates and you seem relevant. It used to not be that big an issue to go to a debate. There weren't these debate floors. You could just show up if you were a big enough national candidate and you could take your shot. You didn't have to break out. Now you have to because you're trying to make sure you can be there for the next debate. There's nowhere left to hide. You have to pay the price to have a shot to continue to make more money and stay relevant. Can you see now where there's a gigantic buzzsaw waiting for all of these low single-digit candidates? In my opinion, this is going to lead to early dropouts. I think they might happen before the third or fourth debate. In fact, we might be seeing one right now with John Hickenlooper. Here's the story from Politico yesterday. His entire staff left him, or at least all the senior members of it. They then told Politico that they told him to quit last month. They say at the time that they quit, they only had 13,000 donors individually. That means that it's almost impossible for him to get to the 130,000 that he's going to need to get to by the time that September rolls around, let alone the fourth one in October. They say he only has raised $1 million in the second quarter. That's about what he raised in the first 48 hours of his campaign. This thing is over. And don't be shocked when sooner rather than later, my campaign undertaker reports to you on this very podcast that John Hickenlooper's campaign for president has been forced to rest in peace. Politics. I would like to thank everybody who subscribes to our free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. We have crested into the 20th century. Yes, we are into the 1900s. We are bearing down on 1918 when, I guess for most of my young life, I used to taunt Red Sox fans because that was the last time they won a championship. They've since won a few more, but for whatever reason, the year still rings out in my head. We are on the road to modernity. We're trying to get to modern times. We're trying to get to 2019 subscribers so we can then embark on our journey to the future If you like this podcast, you're really going to like that newsletter. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Not only is it five stories a day, 
five days a week, mostly gifts, some hot takes, but now also it's the best way that you can keep track of everything that I am doing politically. If, I, uh, if I'm doing a podcast, I'm shouting it out there. If I'm doing a, a little video, I'm shouting it out there. Uh, it's also a great way that you can share the kind of work that I'm doing here with other people. I understand podcasting's a hard thing to, to you know get somebody into, but an email, easily sendable, easily shareable. I thank everybody who has made this journey so awesome so far. Freepoliticalnewsletter.com. There is a great show currently on Netflix. It's a sketch comedy show called I Think You Should Leave. It's by a comedian by the name of Tim Robinson. All of it is very funny. I highly recommend you go watch it if you like sketch comedy. But there's one sketch that for whatever reason is kind of permeated into internet culture. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. It is on YouTube right now. If you just Google focus group sketch, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. It's on Netflix's comedy YouTube channel. I feel very confident in spoiling the premise for you because the premise isn't really the joke, but there's a bizarre old man during a focus group for Ford Motor Company, and he keeps offering bizarre suggestions for what a new automobile should have on it. And so, here are my awards for last week's debates using quotes from the I Think You Should Leave focus group sketch. A steering wheel that doesn't fly off your hand while you're driving. Who better encapsulates a steering wheel that flies off your hand when you're driving than Beto O'Rourke? Not only did he look totally outmatched on the debate stage, he got owned on his key issue by another candidate from his own state who's polling even lower than him, and all the polls that we have seen since then have left him in the dust. He used to be around the 5 to 8% range, now he is in the 1 to 2% range. Woof! Right out the window! I'm doing the best at this. I'm doing the best at this. Hell, I'll bet you that went through the mind of Elizabeth Warren verbatim on night one as she crushed easy question after easy question in her own home run derby with an audience of nobodies to her left and right. Too small. Our too small award goes to Julian Castro for obvious physical reasons. He's a tiny man. I think it's a good idea and I stand by. Well, that one would have to go to Bernie Sanders, who literally just kept saying the exact same thing that he said since 2015. Just keep chopping that wood, Bernie. <laughs> same exact talking points. Really no change. Just kind of thinking it's a good idea and standing by it. I cannot think any good car idea because this guy keeps farting. Hmm, who could be the candidate that dealt nothing but blame to multiple rivals with no perceivable benefit to himself? Well, Bill de Blasio, of course. He couldn't think of any good debate ideas because all these other candidates kept farting. Stinky! Stinky is certainly the face that Cory Booker made when he realized Bill de Blasio was tacitly making fun of him for not having a black son. Oh. What? You have no good car ideas. Shut up. No good car ideas? Frustrating those around them? Well, that's the Marianne Williamson Award if I ever heard it. And now, for our grand finale. Now you have to marry your mother-in-law. Joe Biden, former vice president, 
tremendous decorated record as a senator, a stalwart of American politics for several decades, walked in to the first debate of a grueling year-plus-long campaign, and in his introduction to all of America as he represented himself as somebody who was presidential material, did nothing short of flinching while the bottle flipped and now has to marry his mother-in-law. Look, the the, the, the polls tell the story. We're going to get into one in the poll dance in a few seconds, but this was an utter disaster. Not only did he lose a campaign donor over it, not only has he given rise to literally everybody else, but this is a lead evaporated. Joe, I'm talking to you personally right now. You need to get yourself together because... If you don't, that means you yourself admitting yourself that you suck. It's true. I think it was a really smart idea to dedicate 15 minutes of this podcast to a sketch that nobody's seen. Wrong! Oh, well, if that's the case, then it's probably time for the Parade of Wrong Opinions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg hates her fellow justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Wrong! Yeah, as it turns out, she's actually pretty pleased that he has hired uh, an all-female staff. This according to CBS News. Supreme Court justice and liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Tuesday praised newly confirmed Justice Brett Kavanaugh for appointing an entirely female staff. Ginsburg spoke about her own history in the fight for gender equality to uh, a packed auditorium at the Georgetown Law School. Ginsburg praised Kavanaugh, whose controversial confirmation was marked by allegations of sexual assault, and remarked that the court's upcoming fall term will be the first time in history that more women have been clerking than men. You know this big uh, salute to America celebration that Trump's putting on? You know, I heard uh, the other day, there's going to be Sherman tanks there. Wrong! Yes, it turns out Sherman tanks have uh, not been in use since World War II, so uh, no one quite knows exactly where Trump got that. Uh, This according to nationalinterest.org. Donald Trump vowed that brand new Sherman tanks will be on display this July 4th in Washington, D.C., and no one in the military seems to have any idea about what the heck he's talking about. Quote, we have put uh, them in certain areas, but we have brand new Sherman tanks and have the brand new Abrams tank. Trump said, according to a pool report at the White House. (laughs) You know, we're making a lot of new tanks right now. We're building a lot of new tanks in Lima, Ohio, our great tank factory that people wanted to close down until I got elected, and I stopped it from being closed down, and now it's a very productive facility, and they do the greatest tanks in the world. Now, the M4 Sherman was the main U.S. military tank during World War II. More than 50,000 Shermans were produced during the war, The tank proved to be inferior to most German panzers, and it took the army some time to develop tactics to make the best uh, best of Sherman's limited protection and firepower. The U.S. military stopped using Sherman tanks after the Korean War. Well, here's a little 4th of July present. It looks like Iran is going to honor the Iran nuclear deal, even though we pulled out of it. Wrong! Oh, yeah. 
It's the opposite. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani said that his country will start enriching uranium to any amount we want on July 7th. Quote, our advice to Europe and the United States is to go back uh, to logic and to the negotiating table. Go back to understanding, to respecting the laws and resolutions of the U.N. Security Council. Under those conditions, all of us can abide by the nuclear deal. Well, you know, hold your breath. Hey, Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden, the man who at one point had a 20 plus percent lead in the primary, he raised the most amount of money in the second quarter of the FEC fundraising deadline in 2019 among all those 2020 Democrats. Wrong! Oh, yeah, that was Pete Buttigieg. Bong, bong, the judge is in. And Mayor Pete raised $25 million to Biden's 21 Hmm. But what does that mean in terms of Biden's poll numbers? Well, there's only one way we find out. But first, since we're going five wide, of course, there are a few people that are left outside in the cold. So Booker, Castro, Gabbard, Yang, Klobuchar, Bennett, and Gillibrand. I don't see how you can hate from outside of the club. You can't even get in. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, as if we never left, this is an Economist YouGov poll taken from the 30th of June to the 2nd of July. It is this week's edition of the Stepping up first to the stage, and I'm going to go ahead and assume that he trips on his way up with 2% of the vote barely edging the rest of the field. It is the once ascendant, Beto. I'll tell you what, he belongs here at the pole dance because all he does is make money. 8% of the poll goes to uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Ooh, this is a little bit of an early entrance to the pole dance for this candidate. With 9% of the vote, it is... That opens up some space. With 15% of the vote, she was the belle of the ball of the debates last week. It is an ascendant. Kamala Harris. But your Headliners with 19% of the vote. She is your senator 
from Massachusetts. Let's give a big round of applause for Elizabeth Warren. But still clinging to that headliner status, barely with 23% of the vote, it is Big Joe That again is O'Rourke 2, Buttigieg 8, Sanders 9, Warren 19, Harris 15, Biden 23. We have a whole new ball game. Politics. Well, that must mean it's time for But Your Emails. You can always email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Adam. Adam says, you gave an example of Yang, Andrew Yang, running over his uh, own burgeoning applause during the live show. But I noticed a bunch of people doing it constantly. Not a longtime boxing fan, but I got hooked on fight night years ago, and boxing seems to be the best analogy. There were lots of moments where a short pause would have had a huge effect, uh, effect, especially since there were obvious shills seated in the audience. Did you notice how some candidates started getting applause the instant they stumbled verbally? Moments uh, where slowing down a bit and delivering a well-worded thought with the right cadence could have shook the rafters. Instead, it seemed like everybody was trained during debate prep to recite as much of their stump speech bullet points as quickly as possible during each window of opportunity. Adam, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I highlighted the Yang one just because he said the phrase laughing their asses off, which is something that I have never heard said on a debate stage before. But uh, the reason why... You hear a lot of that run-on sentency stuff is two reasons. Number one, the candidates want to make sure that the moderators don't interrupt them, and they want to make sure that their fellow candidates don't interrupt them. So they have to keep it kind of unbroken until they end on their talking points. Josh writes, Hey, jury, I know it's probably too late for this, but could you discuss the merits of the sniffing sniffer man Joe Biden switching sides and primarying Donald Trump? If he really wants to ensure regime change like his announcement states, wouldn't he have a bigger impact as a Republican? I think I might be done. This might end me indulging any will you primary Trump scenarios. What would happen if Trump got primary scenarios? Number one, stop trying to make fetch happen. Number two, I don't know who you have to be. I mean, I guess, like, look, there's a lot of Bernie fans. There's a lot of progressives that view Joe Biden as indistinguishable from a Republican. I'm telling you now, he's not a Republican. All right. There's a there's plenty of stuff on Joe Biden's resume that you might view as canoodling with the enemy that would make him unelectable to all Republicans. Republicans might like him, quote unquote. Right. But he's not a Republican. Stop trying to make him a Republican. Stop trying to make a Trump primary happen. Now, look, you know I'm rooting for it. You know I'm rooting for a Trump primary because it would make it more of a circus. I would love to see it. But stop it. Please stop. I'm, I'm, I'm done reading these emails. Diamond Scoop writes, why are we letting Colin Kaepernick decide what is and isn't racist? How is the Betsy Ross flag racist? Yes, slavery was legal back then, but we also signed the Declaration of Independence back then. Should we wear, should we tear that up and submit ourselves to the queen? 
George Washington basically won the Revolutionary War by himself, but he also owned slaves. Should we blow up the Washington Monument? We did a lot of awesome things before 1865. We shouldn't throw them all away because there were people owning slaves back then. Now, I left that email in without previously setting up what the hot hell it was about because I want to illustrate something about culture war topics. At the end of the day, even if I'm dedicating 15 minutes of this podcast to a sketch that nobody's seen, at the very least, I'm talking about a thing that we all are aware of, right? There's an election happening. There are candidates. They are doing their best to build their coalition so they can be elected president. The sitting president is Donald Trump, who brings in his own pluses and minuses. By the way, those pluses include, this is something that I was too busy trying to work in. I think you should leave jokes to mention. But Donald Trump did, as part of the second quarter fundraising uh, announcement, raised $105 million. That's more than Obama did at this exact same time. He's going to be running a monster campaign. See, now that's an informational tidbit that you can take into your understanding of the elections and be better for it. I hate culture war topics. For this reason, they're tempest in a teapot. Everybody likes to do it. They're like whippets. They're there to get you high for a very short amount of time and distract you from the actual fundamentals of how you want to shape this world. Because right now, the way that we shape the presidency, if you believe the presidency is the key to all progress, is by electing a president. So no, I'm not going to talk about Colin Kaepernick and how he told Nike that the Betsy Ross shoes were racist and so Nike pulled them. Because I think that it's stupid. I don't care what shoes Nike puts out. And while I'm sympathetic to Colin Kaepernick not having a job, he should have a right to protest, and it makes the NFL a less interesting place to be, and it dominated and I think hurt the NFL's business by not just letting him compete at a training camp, so that would have just gone away naturally by itself because he was a quarterback on the decline. I'm not going to get into it. It's stupid, and it doesn't matter. At least not as much as how much you should watch. I think you should leave on Netflix. Adam writes, totally hypothetical. Could a Democratic candidate select a vice president that is designated to be hated, therefore making the president look better? AOC has so far been assigned the role of GOP hate focus heir apparent to Nancy Pelosi. If she were to be picked as a VP candidate to act as a, a, a hatred human shield, could she insin uh, insulate the presidential candidate against the GOP focus? For example, if uh, Dems hated Vice President Trump so much, would President Pence have an easier time of things? This is one of those too clever by half issues. I think a vice president is mostly there for two reasons. Number one, for any marginal help that they can be as a super surrogate or somebody that can help build their map on election night a little bit better, there's some marginal utility. But by and large, you want somebody who's going to sit down, shut up, and take directions. That's the job of a vice president. It's a reason why vice presidents tend to hate their lives while they're being vice presidents. Because you take hyper achievers, people who have seen themselves as ascending the ladder and have now gotten so close that they had to take that offer to be vice president and then just have to sit on their thumbs for four to eight years. They hate it. So no, I don't think that anybody that could be volatile and get in the way of being a regular traditional vice president would be any better for a president running. That being said, Vice President Pence did a lot to shore up 
uh, uh, just any remaining hopes or any remaining doubts, rather, that Donald Trump would get into office and then abandon the evangelical right. He was a, a gift to them. I suspect that we're probably going to see whatever the weakness is of the Democratic candidate that comes out of that field. They're going to select a vice president that will shore up that weakness. It was kind of the reason why Clinton's, uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016's vice presidential pick, whose name escapes me, although I think that makes my point even stronger, Tim Kaine. Because he didn't really shore up anything. He didn't help with, 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 with progressives. He didn't really fill a void on the map. Like, they had to battle for Virginia, but it wasn't their most important state. So why was he there? Because he was exceptional at sitting down and shutting up. Bob writes, I was listening to some uh, analysis of the first Democratic debate, and the host went off on a tangent about who spoke the most words. Obviously, it's bad if somebody wasn't able to get a word in edgewise, but is it really that big of a deal if Cory Booker said 300 words more than Elizabeth Warren? Or is this, this just more posters analysis trying to justify their jobs? You nailed it on the head, Bobby boy. This is the worst take. They spoke more words. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, we are, we are uh, finding the analytics for who spoke more. Cool. Does it really tell us anything? No. Here's the reason why people use stuff like that. Because they're afraid to come out with their own takes and say this person won and this person lost. Because they don't want two days from now when the polls start coming out for their opinions to be wrong. This is also couched in the fact that so many people who are on your television and writing columns and newspapers and blogs that you read are trying to get hired by these people. Either they either did in the past, they are now, or they hope to in the future. So... They don't like to say, you won, you lost. You suck, you're bad, you did great, you were so-so. They don't want to say that because they all they ultimately want to be a part of the show, Ricky. I don't, which is why I think I'm valuable. If you think I'm valuable, you can go ahead and head over to our Patreon at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Uh, a repeat of what we said before. If you sign up at the $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday. You get a bonus mini podcast on Friday. That means you are never far away from my hot takes. Music for this show has been provided by Valesco and Trop Killers. Follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere, and you can download archived episodes of this show at BonerWars.com. You can also join our Discord. That's where we have a ton of political conversation that I think is really fun and valuable. It is at bit.ly slash jury discord. J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. A big thank you to everybody who came out to our live show, the Can I Finish Live show in San Francisco. It was an amazing crowd. Had a blast hanging out with you guys. But until next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Reminding you that politics has three names. And some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And there was another one I just saw that talked about politics. But this right here is the only one that talks about all three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>